Please welcome the voice of the American Revolution, the former commander-in-chief of the Valley Militia, Virginia Militia, the sixth-term governor of Virginia, and the co-author of the Bill of Rights, Patrick Henry. Good morning. I'm often referred to as America's Forgotten Patriot, so I thought I'd share a little bit with you about my life. I was born at a very young age. <laughs> See if you're awake. In 1736 in Hanover County, Virginia, I had uh, one brother and seven sisters. Right. My father was a farmer. I was homeschooled from the third grade on. I could read and write fluently, Latin, Greek, and French. When I was 19, I married my 15-year-old sweetheart, and together we had six children. Unfortunately, uh, she became insane about the age of 29, and she passed away at age 35. A few years later, uh, anybody ever heard of John Paul Jones? Well, I attended a ball, and John Paul Jones was there with his uh, lady friend, and I managed to squire her away, and we got married. At that time, I was 40, and she was 21. Together, we had 11 children. We didn't have television in my day. And after watching some of yours, I'm not so sure we didn't have the better of it. I was a delegate to the, well, let me just back up a moment. Um, my uncle carved out a piece of land to support my wife. I became a farmer, but I was a terrible farmer. Failed miserably. So then my uncle financed my brother and I on a commercial venture, and I went bankrupt after a few years. Tried one other venture, a little more successful. I managed to sell off the assets and pay off the creditors, debtors. So after failing miserably at the first three things I tried to do, I came to a very logical conclusion. I decided to become an attorney. <laughs> I was a very good attorney. Uh, I checked out all the law books I could. I read them, studied for six months, got on my horse, rode into Williamsburg, Virginia, sat before a tribunal of four lawyers, and they all signed off I could practice law. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, went three years to law school to become an attorney. Six-month wonder. I was a delegate to your first and second Continental Congress. In fact, if you were to go to... Uh, Philadelphia today, outside Carpenter's Hall, there's a plaque. And it's a quote from me, and I said this. From this moment forward, we are no longer New Yorkers, Delawareans, Rhode Islanders. I am no longer a Virginian. I am an American. John Adams, your second president, said of me, of all the men in Congress, there was but one man, Patrick Henry, who appeared to have a sense of the precipice of danger upon which we stood and have the courage and the ability to address it. You see, things were going along pretty well in your country until 1765. Can anybody tell me what happened in England in 1765? Under revisionist history in your schools, I'm not surprised you don't know this. King George III came to the throne. And he introduced a Stamp Act. 
Now, at that time, I was 29 years of age. I had been a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses for six days. And in my memoirs, I wrote, I sat there as I heard this discussion about the Stamp Act. I kept waiting for men of more substantial weight than I to stand and address it. But being young, inexperienced, naive, I wrote out seven resolutions against the Stamp Act. And at the conclusion of my talk, I said this. Charles I had his Cromwell, Caesar had his Brutus, and King George III may profit from their example. Lots of cries of treason swept throughout the house, and I said, if this be treason, make the most of it. Well, word spread throughout the colonies of Virginia. So you need to understand something. Virginia at this time was the bellwether colony in your country. It was the largest colony. It had most of its leaders. In fact, you have more presidents from Virginia than any other state in your country today. That didn't stop King George, though. The Townsend Act, the Quartering Act, the Boston Massacre occurs, the Boston Tea Party. And now we come to 1775. I am now serving in the Virginia House of Burgesses. Lord Dunsmore, the reigning monarch in the area, had heard a rumor about the subject matter of this particular convention. So he locked the doors to where we met. So we were forced to flee into Richmond, Virginia, and we met in a very small St. John's Episcopal Church. Now, for the next several moments, I want you to go back in time because everyone in this room is going to be a delegate, even though they were all men then, ladies, but everyone is going to be a delegate at this convention, and you're going to have a chance to vote on my motion. Can you still vote in your country? Uh-huh, okay. At any rate, uh, for the next few moments... Pay attention, uh, because I made a motion for the immediate armament of a militia. Cries of treason swept throughout the house. There's 125 men, delegates. All the windows are open. There's a huge overflow crowd of people gathered around. This is March 23rd, 1775. However, they quieted down a little bit when my motion was seconded by Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. So after a long debate, I rise to make my summation speech on behalf of my motion. No one has greater respect for the abilities of some of you gentlemen who have just addressed the House. But different men, we often see the same subject in a different light. And holding as I do, thoughts of an opinion and character very different from some of you, I'm going to speak worth by sentence freely and without any reservation because this is no time for ceremony. The question before the House. What an awful moment to our country. And to me, it is a simple question. It is either freedom or slavery. And due to the magnitude of that subject, ought to be the freedom of the debate, because it's only by this that we are going to arrive at the truth and thus fulfill our awesome responsibility to God and to our country. For me to hold back now my thoughts at the risk of giving offense to some of you, I would consider that an act of treason towards my country and an act of disloyalty against the majesty of heavens whom I revere above all earthly kings. You know, it's natural for men to engage in fond illusions of hope. We are apt to shut our eyes against a very painful truth and listen to that song of siren, lull us to sleep. 
and transform us into beasts. Are these the acts of wise men engaged in a great and arduous struggle for liberty and freedom? Are we to be counted among those who, having eyes, see not, having ears, hear not, those things most concerning your temporal salvation? Well, for my part, regardless of the anguish of truth, I want to know the worst so I can prepare for it. And I know of no way of judging the future but by the past. And judging by the past, I want to know what has there been in the conduct of the British ministry these past ten years which has given so many of you much hope. Was it that uh, insidious smile which accompanied our last petition? Trust it not, sir. It will prove a snare to your feet. Suffer not yourselves to be betrayed by a kiss. I ask you how this graceful reception of our petition comports with those warlike activities which govern our land and darken our coasts. Are a fleet of armies and navies necessary to win back our reconciliation? Do not deceive yourselves. These are acts of warfare, the last acts to which kings resort. Because has Great Britain any other enemy in this quarter of the world that would justify this army? No, she's none. They're meant for us. They're meant for none other. They have been sent over here by the British ministry to bind and rivet upon us those chains which she has been so long forging. And what are we to offer against her? Well, we could try argument. <laughs> We've been trying that for 10 years. What new terms shall we offer? Already been exhausted. Shall we offer further entreaty and supplication? We have done everything that could be done to avert this storm that's approaching. We've petitioned, we've remonstrated. We've supplicated and we've cast ourselves at the foot of the throne and beg its interposition to resist the tyrannical hands of Parliament and the ministry. Our petitions, slighted. Our remonstrances, further insult and physical violence. Our supplications, disregarded. And we've been spurned with contempt at the foot of the throne. In vain after these things. Do some of you still have fond illusions of hope? There is no longer any room for hope if we would be free. If we mean to hold inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we've been so long contending. If we mean not basely to abandon the noble cause which we have so long endured and pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be achieved, then we must fight. I repeat it. We must fight. A call appeal to God and appeal to the God of hosts is all that we have left. Sir, I say reason, restraint. We are far too weak to fight. We are ill-prepared to engage in such a battle. We need more time to prepare. Hear, hear, hear. The British have the mightiest army in the world. Fighting now would mean certain disaster for us, sir. We need to be organized. 
time to prepare. Here, 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 here. Sir, we're unorganized, under-equipped, lacking in sound military skills. We have a shortage of military leaders. We must be stronger before engaging them in battle. Here, here, here. That's right. You tell us that basically that we are weak, unable to fight as a formidable opponent. Gentlemen, when are we going to be any stronger? Next week? Next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and a British soldier is stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by a resolution and inaction? Or shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs, hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies have bound us hand and foot? We are not weak. If we would but make use of the natural resources which the God of nature hath placed at our disposal. Three Millions of people armed in the glorious cause of liberty. We are invincible against any force which our enemy can send against us. And besides, we do not fight our battles alone. Because there is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. And besides, the battle does not go to the strong alone. It goes to the active, the vigilant, and the brave. Even if we were base enough to desire it, there can be no retreat now from this contest. A retreat now would be in chains and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston and war is inevitable. And I say, let it come. I repeat, let it come. It's really in vain to extenuate this matter any longer. You may well cry, peace, peace. There is no peace. The war's actually begun. The next clash from the north is going to bring to our ears a sound of resounding arms. And our brethren, they're already in the field. So why are we standing here idle? What is it you wish? What is it you would have? 
is, is life so dear? Or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others of you may take, but as for me, give me liberty. Forgive me death. now going to call for the vote on my motion. All of you are delegates. Don't be bashful. Your chance to vote. You're going to say aye or you're going to say nay. So all those in favor of my motion to raise a militia say aye. Aye. All opposed, no. The actual vote was 65 in favor and 60 against. Now, things moved rather rapidly. Less than a month later, the shot heard around the world, Battle of Lexington and Concord, in which a church pastor was drilling his troops in close order drill. Paul Revere had warned the British were coming the night before. The British group comes by. The general orders the pastor and his group to lay down their arms. Disperse, you rebs. They don't. They fire five, 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 uh, five Paul dead. The British move on, but they're ambushed at uh, Concord, and they flee all the way back. We have the Second Continental Congress. It's in May of 1775. That Congress meets off and off and on. All this time, we are still trying to petition the Crown for redress of grievances. Finally, we come to late June, when once again the Continental Congress is called. The sole purpose of this last, latter convention is to decide once and for all, are we going to declare our independence or are we going to continue to buckle under an increasing heavy taxation system and a British regime. It had been decided that every colony had to vote in favor. Not all the delegates, but all the colonies. The key to this convention becomes Little Delaware. They have three delegates. One very loyal to the crown, two in favor of independence. But one of them, Caesar Rodney, he leaves the convention early. He's called home on an emergency, so he's gone the last week. They cannot break the tie vote in Delaware. So they send three men on horseback off to find Caesar Rodney. And they find him. Rodney, we need your vote or it's not going to pass. Rodney gets on a horse, 75-mile trip in the middle of the night, terrible rainstorm, three bridges washed out. We so guessed across three swollen rivers. Rodney literally arrives at the convention. He's carried into the convention, totally exhausted, just in time to cast the tie-breaking vote. So never underestimate the power of one vote. 
But that's not what I want you to remember about Caesar running. He had cancer. Covered part of his face. He often wore a mask to cover it. He had been told his best chance of survival was to get on a ship and go back to a specialist in England. When Rodney passed that vote, he signed his death warrant because he did die of cancer. You know, when they signed that document, weeks later, actually, it was published and then signed weeks later, they took the document, they placed it on a table, they put the Bible on top of it. All the delegates knelt in prayer. Many wept. Finally, Sam Adams, the, who's been referred to as the father of the American Revolution, he stood up and said this. We have this day returned to the sovereign to whom alone all men should be obedient. No king but King Jesus. That was the battle cry of your revolution. No king but King Jesus. At the height of the war, the height of the war, only about 20% of the colonists supported it. That's the height. In the beginning, about 3 or 4%. Roughly 40% supported the enemy, feeding them, clothing them, housing them, enlisting in their army, spying. The balance, roughly a third, really didn't seem to care. Change sides depend on who was winning. And I submit to you, things have not changed a great deal in your country. But here's the question. How could? 13 ragtag colonies having had two meetings, George Washington having one year to raise an army with no army, one year to raise one. How could, and the mightiest army in the world is already on our shore. How could we possibly win? Well, I submit to you is because this was a Christian revolution. Jesus Christ says there are two things you must do before you fight. The first one, he says, is you must protest. He protested before Pontius Pilate. Everybody say, we protested 11 years. 11. Then he says, flee. King George III in 1763 had said that the colonists could move no further than the Allegheny Mountains westward. Hands off. They were all around us. There was no place to flee. Then he says you can fight. Want to know where your Second Amendment comes from? Teachings of Jesus Christ. What was the weapon in Jesus' day? The sword. The very last thing Jesus Christ says in the Garden of Gethsemane. The last thing he says to his disciples before he's taken away. When I sent you out, this is in Luke 32, 33, 34, 35. When I sent you into the world, did you lack for anything? No, Lord, nothing. Well, let he who has a purse and also a bag, let him take it alone. And let he who has no sword, let him sell his purse and buy one. Peter said, look, Lord, here's two. 
fact, it was Peter that cut off the fear of the high priest. So that's where your Second Amendment comes from. Of course, the key to this war is George Washington, my very good friend. In fact, George Washington's wife and my wife were first cousins. I didn't tell you this, but there's a good chance I could have been your second president if I'd wanted to be. Uh, Washington wanted to be his, his vice president, and I turned that down. And also was offered the position of chief. I could have been your first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court, but I turned that down as well. I just love my state of Virginia, and I served six terms, longer than any other governor. I've been elected more terms as governor than any other governor also in the history of your country. So Washington is a big key. Very, Despite revisionist history, strong man of faith, strong man, very godly man. And another big key to this war were the militia, the Minutemen. One minute shoeing horses, working in the stables, bankers, farmers, the next minute armed with hardly any exception at all. The commanding officer of every single militia unit was, in fact, a church pastor. Was, in fact, a church pastor. And the men in his militia unit were men from his church. So many pastors fought in the war, they referred to as the Black Regiment, to the black clerical collars that they wore at that time. So I submit to you, it was a Christian revolution in every sense of the word. I thought I would share with you, get someone to help you. I want to talk to you about the origin of your flag. Who can tell me what the 13 uh, stripes stand for? What does the red stand for? What does the white stand for? What does the blue stand for? Anybody that really knows, raise your hand. I mean, you really know what the blue stands for. Only had I, I did this at a flag convention of 150 flag dealers. Nobody knew the answer. Blue stands for heaven. We deliberately selected a five-point star. Not a four-point, a five-point star. Why? Because each star would be pointing towards heaven. It's in the form of a constellation. See, we believed that a new nation being birthed on earth would be blessed in the heavenlies. That's the story of your flag. It's not taught in your history books today. And to further emphasize that, this is the flag that George Washington decreed would fly on every single naval vessel. White symbolizes the purity. You'd show both sides. Firm green evergreen tree, strong pointing upwards and on the top a star and the obvious words and appeal to heaven. Appeal to heaven. On the, thank you. You know, on the sign of you know, the uh, many schools today, of course, don't even talk about your declaration of independence because it mentions your creator. You know, 52 of the 56 signers were born again Christians. Several of them were pastors. Five of them had pastors as uh, their children were pastors. And they paid a terrible price when, at the end when they signed that document. In fact, just a little bit of humor. When John Hancock signed it, he said, His Majesty can read my signature. He will not need his bifocals. <laughs> Gentlemen, we're all going to hang together.
whereas Ben Franklin stood up and said, well, I don't know if we're all going to hang together, but we're all going to hang. Well, within 18 months, 12 of those men were dead. Uh, five had been captured by the British, tortured. Two had their wives in prison. One was murdered, one killed in a duel, one was lost at sea. Most of them had all their property seized and burned to the ground. That's the price that they paid for the privilege of where we are today. You know, things were going along pretty well in your country until 1962. What happened in 1962? What happened in 1963? The next year. Bible was taken out of the classroom. And since then, congratulations, America, you have continued to become more and more of a world leader. You lead the world in pornography, drugs, teenage sex, divorce, almost as high in Christian marriages as none. Uh, your current president has said that this is not a Christian nation. Well, you know, Christopher Columbus, if you read his memoirs, memoirs, he was a very strong Christian. He had a vision since a small boy he would take the Bible to an uncharted land. And if you read his memoirs, he said that for the purpose of his voyage, he did not use mathematics, intelligence, or maps. He sailed blindly. He landed at eight different places, erected eight wooden crosses. And that's why King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella financed his trip, because it was a godly vision. And the Mayflower Compact, before the pilgrims got off, most of your textbooks delete this now or put the three dots in, but they clearly said, we have undertaken this voyage for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Let me tell you some Supreme Court decisions before 1962, clearly affirming the role of Jesus Christ in your country. And I'm going to seize on one case in particular because it quotes three others. 1892, this is, this is Church of the Holy Cross versus the United States. Did you know that in 1892 it was illegal to import foreign labor into America? Illegal. But the church imported a pastor from England. And the Supreme Court said, this was never meant to discriminate against Christianity. This is a Christian nation, and our laws presuppose a Christian being. And they quoted these following cases. And one case they quoted was 1811 case, Pennsylvania, People v. Ruggles. Ruggles, in public, had said Jesus Christ was a bastard and his mother was a whore. Three months in jail. That Supreme Court said, basically again, that what he said was wrong. It was bad for Christian, for, for the youth to hear this type of language. And so he goes to prison for it. There's another case in New York where someone, again, blasphemes Jesus Christ. He's also fine and goes to jail. And the same result. He stays there. But here's the, here's, here's the, but the other case. This is a this United States Supreme Court case, 1844. Vidal versus Gerard's executioners. 
Gerard was a Frenchman that left $7 million. Well, that's a lot of money today. Can you imagine what it was worth in 1844? He leaves it to this university with a stipulation that you can't teach from the Bible. Daniel Webster, ever heard of him? He argues this case for the university because they obviously want the money. 1844, this Supreme Court says, why may not the Bible be used in the classroom? Where else can the purest forms of morality be learned, especially from the New Testament? The Bible is an appropriate textbook for the classroom. Now, that's 1844. So how could 180 years later, the vote, by the way, was six to one, two judges didn't vote. Six men, in the face of those cases, plus a host of others, basically say, oh, no, we, we got it right. Everybody else missed it. Well, they couldn't base it on law. So what did they do? They found a letter. A letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist. 1802. The Danbury Baptist Convention had heard a rumor that we were going to a one-nation religion. So they write Jefferson a letter. He writes a four-paragraph letter back. Not an act of Congress. It's not in your Constitution, like most people think. It's not an amendment. A phrase deliberately lifted. What Jefferson said was, oh, no, I hold with you that solemn act of the American people that declared that their legislature should enact no law respecting the establishment of religion, thereby creating a wall of separation of church and state. Now, you look to me like a fairly intelligent audience, so don't disappoint me. I'm, this, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. This is not a trick question. Okay? It's not a trick question. It, just answer what comes to mind. Pick on you, Pastor. This is not a trick question. You have prisons. And the prisoners are in their cells. But there's huge wall around the prison. Why is it there? To keep them from getting out. Okay. Medieval castles. Most of them had a, moat, a river around with a moat, but they had huge high walls. Why do they have huge high walls? Keep them in. So far, so good. We'll do one more. If you had a swimming pool and you had babies or small children, you'd probably build a fence around it. Why would you do that? See, I've asked you three questions, and you've given me one answer. Walls aren't built for two reasons. They're only built for one reason. And Jefferson clearly meant government was to stay out of religion. That's what he meant. And they deliberately misinterpreted that, basically said, we know what Jefferson meant. He had the sense of what was going on at the, at the, at the Constitution, Convention. Well, that's really interesting, you see, because Jefferson wasn't even there. <laughs> He's an ambassador to France. If they wanted to quote somebody... They might have quoted John Adams who said this, the highest glorious principle of the American Revolution was that it united for the first time the bonds of government and Christianity never to be dissolved. Does that sound like separation of church and state to you? No, of course not. So that's the problem that you find yourself in today. You know, I'm often asked, and I am going to close with this next little thing. 
I'm often asked when I speak, how long do I need? I think I told your pastor, and my response was, I once spoke four and a half hours <laughs> against ratifying your Constitution. And I prepare, and believe me, given the time, I could do it, but I won't. But I'm going to condense my concerns. And as you look at your country today, you be the judge. I've had people say, are you talking about then or today? Just very briefly, these were my main concerns. Under this new document, it's squints of a monarchy. Your president may easily become king. If he be a man of ambition, he may seize the first auspicious moment to accomplish his design. And who will stop him? He has a standing army. And he has the power of the purse. What free nation has long existed when its leadership had the power of the army in one hand and the power of the purse in the other? Not long. So away with your president. You shall have a king. And your senate, they can erect treaties that would be injurious to your health. And there is no way to punish them. But we have been told that our elected officials would never do anything that was not in our best interest. Your judiciary, where is your check on the judiciary? If you do not put a check on the judiciary, you will one day live under judicial tyranny. And under this new document, you're going to have two sets of tax gatherers. Your, bloody, your sheriffs at the local level seek, gets out your blood with commissions and fees, and if under the watchful eye of our state legislature they are committing these, committing these acts, how can we keep our eyes on Philadelphia where there's another set of tax gatherers? That was the capital then. Armed with this new legislation, Congress will send hordes of people. They will come into and measure your homes and cellars and measure and mete out your substance. But my biggest fear about this document is your right to bear arms. I predict if this measure passes, there will not be one musket left in the state of Virginia. Your arms, which you could defend yourselves, are in the hands of Congress, who may or may not arm you. You read about a riot act in a country that's considered one of the freest in the world, where its citizenry do not gather in large numbers for fear of being shot by a hired soldiery. We may see that act one day in America. What I say to you today is it's time for you to consider raising a militia. Because your enemy today is ignorance, fear, apathy, and complacency. But your weapons, besides humbleness and prayer, is education and involvement. And I'm saying to you that time has come once more in the history of your country to fight. Go back to where this started. Fight on any level that you can, petitions, protests, whatever, electing starts at school level, to do anything and everything you can to get Jesus Christ, prayer, and the Bible back in the classroom of the United States of America. Fight to keep under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. In God we trust in the national motto. 
do this not only for you, but for your children and your grandchildren. So that when you stand before Jesus Christ on Judgment Day, He'll say to you, Thy good and faithful servant, you fought the good fight. God bless you. God bless the state of Texas. And God, please bless the Republic of the United States of America. And remember the words of Paul in Galatians 5.1 when he said, It was for your freedom that Christ died. Stand firm and never again be subject to a yoke of tyranny. Thank you, Dr. Hurley. You may be seated. Uh, we're going to take up an offering, and then he's going to come back and tell us about some of his materials. I'm excited about what he and others are doing to keep history alive. Uh, who knows history is being revised? I mean, there's even a move on to try to deny that the Holocaust ever happened. Thank God the museums are everywhere in their face. And so uh, we want to do our part to, to help help with